You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Envisioning that smog-free harbor, I saw a ferry pushing through this same kind of light, an afternoon of wind-chipped water, each chip a spark, the ferry surrounded by leaping sparks, an old double-decked side-wheel steamer that once plied the Sacramento River, but now puffed back and forth across the bay, this time bound for San Francisco. Something came to me then, and I should have started talking. On the air I could have talked for hours. I wanted to call out the words on the sign behind me, Save Our Voice. I wanted to tell them about my great-grandmother and how she came to be aboard this ferry, the unspoken history threaded through her stories, her diary. I wanted to tell them more about the floating memory of her daughter Rosa and all the family souvenirs crammed inside her airstream. Tell them about Rosa's son, my missing father, who never had a voice and didn't live long enough to gather any souvenirs save for one purple heart and a snapshot of his high school girlfriend. When Larry handed me the bullhorn, I thrust it toward the sky, drawing another roar from the expectant crowd, but when I held it to my lips, nothing came. In my eagerness to speak, I'd lost my powers of speech. I could only see pictures. I was like the blindfolded guy before the firing squad in the instant before the triggers are pulled, in that loaded interval between aim and fire, his whole life passes before him, though in this case, it was not my life. It was Nani's. Larry was trying to save the station's voice. I was trying to save Nani's voice. Nani didn't know it yet, but she would soon be trying to save Kavika's voice. I saw where he had been. I saw where she had been. I saw where she was going, or thought I did. I'd been rushing through the trove of volumes passed on to me by Rosa devouring pages no one else had ever read, gripped by her account of those days as she lived them and as she revisited events that seemingly took half a lifetime to understand. I passed the bullhorn to Larry, but didn't leave the flatbed. He wanted me to stand with him as others came forth to testify, to bear witness, to lash out at management, call for public hearings, call for a letter barrage to the station and to Argonaut, to state and federal officials, called for volunteers to blockade the building. It was more than a rally. It was a war party, and I listened. I had to. My job was on the line. Yet I wasn't there, and I did not listen. I was two places at once, in my body and out of my body, standing on the flatbed like a revolutionary and floating out over the silvery luster of the bay. James D. Houston is the author of eight novels, including Snow Mountain Passage. With his wife, Jean Wakatsuki Houston, he co-authored the nonfiction work Farewell to Manzanar. His other nonfiction works includes Californians Searching for the Golden State and Hawaiian Sun, The Life and Music of Eddie Kamai. His newest novel is Bird of Another Heaven. Welcome to the program, James. Thank you. Great to be here with you. You know, when I read this book, Bird of Another Heaven, it really struck me about the the family ties in this are really strong. The layers and layers of genealogy 
And, and one of the really fun things about this book is putting together that genealogy and the history of the family because it's really complicated. It's like a, a little mystery that the reader gets to put together and slowly coalesces. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, what started you down this path of family genealogy? <laughs> well, you know, part of it is... Part of it has to do with my researches into California history. Part of it has to do with my own family background. The central character in this novel is this woman, Nani Keala, uh, who is half Hawaiian and half California Indian. And she was born in the uh, Sierra Nevada foothills in a tribal village in the 1860s and ended up having an extraordinary life, an almost mythic life. And when I first heard that story, just the, the, the thread of the story, I became fascinated with it. In order to find a way to tell it, I, I had to develop a character uh, who's now the narrator of the novel, who is a great-grandson of this woman. And he discovers in the midst of his life that uh, he has this great-grandmother who was Indian and Californian, and it's a part of his own family legacy that was kept out of sight by his parents. He didn't know that about himself, and he didn't know that about his 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 blood father. Um, and so his search for the truth of his own family ancestry is at the center of the novel. So genealogy and background and family legacy is a big feature of, of uh, the the storyline. And I had a similar experience in my own life. My grandmother, who was a very sweet Tennessee Mountain fundamentalist Christian lady, uh, born in the Appalachians in the the 1880s, uh, moved down to Huntsville, Alabama in in 1900 when her father got tired of dirt farming and put all his kids to work in the cotton mills, textile mills. And she married a guy who was half Indian, who was half Cherokee. But I didn't find out about this for a long time. Um, And even after I found out about it, nobody would talk to it. My mother wouldn't talk about it, my grandmother. They said there were no pictures, there were no letters that he had sort of um, disappeared and they had had no, they didn't want to remember him. This is a case of what you call in the book white memory. White memory, yeah. So, I mean, I am, uh, it ends up I'm I'm one-eighth Cherokee not in a way that I could ever claim any tribal identity because I had no cultural education in that area, but that was part of my family's unspoken legacy that I had to spend a little effort uh, digging out. So I ended up writing this story about Sheridan Brody, who has a similar kind of history. So, you know, it's always something like that in a novel. Uh, You invent a character that allows you to work out part of your own mix. One of the things that this pointed out to me that that seemed really interesting as I thought about it is what I call the, the grandmother barrier in in all of our memories. I think most people have a pretty good idea of what their parents did and a less good but still pretty firm idea of what their grandparents did. Beyond that, Zippo. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm wondering if if this kind of barrier presented any problems to you in your personal research and also in your research for the book and one thing that that fascinates me is what you said. Nani is a real was a real person. Uh, well, she's based upon a woman whose story I heard, who lived in Northern California, born in the 1860s, 
It's a, it's a family story, a family legend. And, you know, these things, who knows uh, how many of the details are true. Things become, as they're told over and over again, especially in an oral tradition, they, they tend to become legendary. And it's hard to sort out the actual fact from what people hoped happened. Um, but I, I came upon a story which, as I heard it, just had this extraordinary uh, potential to it. A woman of mixed blood background whose parents passed away when she was young, and so she ends up working as a domestic for a wealthy white rancher in Northern California. So by the time she's 18, she can speak three languages. She can speak English, Hawaiian, and her tribal language. And for any woman in the late 19th century, that's extraordinary uh, to have that kind of language mobility. And as a result, a very unusual cultural mobility. You know, she could move around uh, from her tribal region to San Francisco, to Honolulu, and come back. And when I started hearing, thinking about that, I thought, my God, this is, this really has something you could work with. (laughs) As a storyteller, you know. Well, it speaks to the remarkable power of language itself. Yes, absolutely. You know, language is is a key to culture. Language is a key to the way our minds work. And language is, is a way to move from one culture to another. You know, if you want to cross a cultural border, it's very hard to do it without the language that's on the other side of the border. (laughs) I'd like to talk to you a little bit about this process of creating fiction from actual history. This is something that you didn't you came to late in in your writing career. It wasn't you haven't always been a historical novelist, have you? Uh not at all. Not at all. Although I don't know some of my earlier novels now start to have a historical <laughs> aspect to them, but I didn't my first novels were uh, all what you would call contemporary novels about families in Northern California struggling with all their family stuff. But the first trip into historical fiction was Snow Mountain Passage, which was about the, about a family who came into California with the Donner Party, which I began to write about because we happened to live here in Santa Cruz, right across the lake here from the radio station, in an old Victorian house that was once inhabited by one of the younger survivors of the Donner Party a young woman named Patty Reed who, she was born in 1838. She was eight when the Donner Party set out from Springfield. She almost starved to death up in the Sierra Nevada range, and she died in what is now our bedroom over here in Santa Cruz in 1923. And when I found out her story, I got really interested in her life. And that led me to her family's life, and that led me into the Donner Party, and that, in order to understand the Donner Party story, I get involved in studying the history of the settlement of, you know, the Far West, which became the background for uh, Snow Mountain Passage. And so, kind of, I, I came at historical fiction through the side door. I didn't wake up one morning and say, wow, uh, I think the world is ready for another book about the Donner Party. <laughs> <laughs> because I, by accident, had ended up in this old house where she had once lived, the story was already inside the house, and I was sort of compelled to tell it. How long had you lived there when you discovered this? Well, 
you know, when we first moved into the house, we didn't know that it had a history. This was back in, I was just out of graduate school at Stanford, and I knew we wanted to live in Santa Cruz, and I knew I wanted to get started as a novelist or a writer, which meant I wasn't going to have any money for a good while. And this was the cheapest place we could find. It was empty, and nobody had lived there for three years. This was before the university opened. So old houses were like this. Old Victorians were being torn down because they were kind of old and in the way. Now they're all premium houses. But in, in the early 60s, this place it was almost abandoned. And, um, and we, we got the whole thing for $75 a month, two stories with a big attic. Wow. That shows you how long ago it was. <laughs> um, now you couldn't rent my carport for $75 a day. <laughs> but um, years went by before I really uh, you know, paid attention to who had lived there because I, was, I wanted to write and I wanted to write fiction, but I was a contemporary writer and I wrote contemporary stories and old pioneer stories that wasn't in, in my grid anywhere. I, so I sort of, noticed details and heard things and filed them away, but I wasn't thinking of it as something I would ever want to write about. And that took quite a while to, to reach that point. Now, when you start to write historical fiction, whether it's about the Donner Party or hear about the fall of Hawaii as a kingdom, how do you go about doing the kind of research, and how do you start to, to accumulate that research and then find the story and turn that research into a compelling human story? Well, that's a, that's a good uh, a good question. It goes right to the heart of the matter, because with the Donner Party story, at a certain level, the story's already there, because the chronology is known. The trip from Springfield, Illinois, across the plains, uh, up into the Sierras, getting stuck at Donner Lake, toughing it out, losing some people, ending up down at Sutter's Fort, all that's there. I mean, there's a storyline there that's really interesting, mm-hmm. um, and yet it's not a novel. No, no. What makes it a novel? What makes it a novel is somehow getting under the surface of that story, getting inside the lives, inside the heads, inside the hearts of some of the people uh, and what drove them and uh, what was the emotional truth for specific individuals. In this story, that in Bird of Another Heaven, it's, um, there was a bit more invention because the relationship between King Kalakaua and this mixed-blood woman uh, is something that's may or may not be historically true. There's a family legend that says something happened between these two people, but uh, there's not much evidence around to support that one way or the other. But at the same time, what happened to King Kalakaua in the late 19th century, the book sort of starts at the end of his trip around the world. He was the first ruler of any nation to travel all the way around the globe, the King of Hawaii, which he did in 1881. That's true. And it's also true that he died in the Palace Hotel in January of 1891 um, under somewhat mysterious circumstances. And a few days before he died, his voice was recorded by the manager of the Edison Electric Company with an old, uh, one of the early, early uh, voice recording machines, uh, which is another episode that has fascinated me for a long time. So in the historical record, there's stuff like that to work with. But then in order to make it a novel, 
again, you have to have, I have to presume to enter the life of Kalakaua, this, this king of Hawaii, a man from a, another cultural background than mine, and, and give him actions and dialogue and perceptions uh, that bring him to life as a character. Tell us a little about, bit about him. He's a really fascinating character. Even if you just read the Wikipedia entry, it's really compelling, and your novel is ex- extremely interesting. Well, thank you. Thank you. I've been fascinated with Kalakaua for a long time because he was a man of, of extraordinary talents and huge appetites and an almost uh, legendary figure in Hawaii and in the history of Hawaii. He was sort of caught in a classic way, like so many Native peoples, caught between a devotion to his own traditional culture. He was a great dancer of the hula. He was a composer in Hawaiian. He was a Hawaiian poet. He played several musical instruments, and he composed songs, and he built musical instruments, and he used... He used his role as a king to bring back uh, the hula as a centerpiece of Hawaiian culture after three generations of missionaries had tried to suppress it and wipe it out because it was lascivious and barbaric and, and dangerous. And at the same time, he was captivated by all the seductions of the Western world. So he's caught right there. You see these pictures of him in these Prussian uniforms with all these medals across his chest, which are just non-medals. They're just kind of medals of honor that are given to him when he visits a country. And it looks like he's been in 50 battles, but they're just big stars made out of something. And he pins them on his chest, and he loves all that display and all that kind of European pomp. Uh, and he builds himself this huge Italianate palace in the middle of Polynesia, because he wants to be a king like the kings in Europe. And this is the Iolani Palace? Iolani Palace, Iolani yeah. Palace. And he, uh, he loves all that stuff, which was part of his charisma and part of his uh, fascination of his character, but at the same time, part of his downfall. The same forces that he was attracted to are the ones that undermined his kingdom. And finally, you know, the United States government wants so badly wants control of the Hawaiian Islands that they they take it away from the Hawaiian people, take Hawaii away from the Hawaiian people. Tell us a little bit about his his work as a, as a musician, because you've written about Hawaiian musicians before, too. You wrote a, a biography of Eddie Kamai. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about how maybe your, in, did your interest in Eddie Kamai feed your interest in the musical aspects of King Kalaakaua's life? Uh, well, that, that's part of it. The more I came to understand... See, I grew, up, I grew up in San Francisco with a father from Texas who had been out to the Hawaiian Islands in the 20s where he learned how to play the Hawaiian steel guitar. So I grew up in San Francisco with this father who every free moment, he was a painting contractor and he didn't have much free time, but all, every free moment he's working out on the steel guitar playing either the steel guitar rag and the San Antonio Rose or the Hilo March and the Beach at Waikiki and the Hawaiian War Chant. And he never played any of it very well, but he played the hell out of it because he was obsessed with getting them right. So that's my musical heritage, part country and part Hawaiian. Um, And uh, as I began to spend time in Hawaii and listen to more Hawaiian music 
And finally, after I got acquainted with Eddie Kamai, I worked with Eddie on seven uh, documentary films about Hawaiian cultural history. Oh, really? Yeah. So you spent a, quite a bit of time in Hawaii then. Oh, yeah. I go to Hawaii at least once or twice a year. And Eddie asked me to, to work with him. One of the great privileges of my life was to be invited by Eddie to be his collaborator on these films. And so we worked on several seven cultural documentaries, mostly about Hawaiian music. So in the process, I got deeper and deeper into the music, and <clears throat> Kalakaua plays a big part in the, in the history of Hawaiian music. His family, um, the, uh, he, had, he had a brother and two sisters. Uh, and uh, in the mid-19th century, uh, they were the key figures in the, in the kind of transition of Hawaiian music from typical Polyne- the traditional Polynesian delivery, which was chant with a drum accompaniment. That was traditional Hawaiian music. And the chant had a narrow range of notes, you know, like seven or eight notes in a chant. Kalakaua and his sister Lilio Kalani and his other sister Like Like and his... Um, Bro- younger brother, Leleo Hoku, were all composers and all instrumentalists. And they all compose songs that are performed to this day. And they're called the Four Eha, the Four Chiefs of you know, Hawaiian music. And, and Kalakaua was, and they were all trained in the Hawaiian poetic tradition. And that, you know, that tradition goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's a very elaborate kind of poetry that was transmitted orally. And composers composed songs that were never written down, but remembered from generation to generation, and they have these layers of meaning in the same way that good English language poetry has layers of meaning. And Kalakaua was a master of that oral poetry tradition, and he brought it over into his songs, and some of those songs are still played today. And and, um, he and his, uh, his siblings were enormously influential in the rise of what we now think of as Hawaiian music. It's a sound that combines that traditional percussive chant uh, history with gospel harmonies and instrumentation from Europe and Spain um, and uh, all coming together you know, to make a, a sound that we now call Hawaiian music. He did all this in between uh, running Hawaii, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit easier said than done. Yeah. Uh, one thing that, that fascinates me is he, he seems somewhat uh, ahead of his time in his kind of approach to celebrity. A- as a celebrity, he seemed very much at ease, in, 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 as you portray him in the novel, and very much at ease with, with his celebrity. And tell us a little bit about that. That's an interesting question. It really is. I never thought of it that way. But he was a terrific celebrity. One thing, he had a very good education. He and his sister, Lilio Kalani, uh, who succeeded him to the throne af- after he died, uh, were said to be the best educated people in the islands. They were both grew up studying not only English language, but America, uh, English and American music, uh, literature, uh, history of the United States, history of Europe. So he could mix extremely well. And when he toured around the world, people loved him everywhere he went. He wasn't, you know, like some primitive 
you know, who comes in in a funny outfit and people just want to stand and stare at him. He could carry on a conversation. Uh, he could. He was a great ballroom dancer. Uh, he was. A, he was a great raconteur. Uh, he loved to drink, and the more he drank, the more charming he was. And women fell in love with him all over the world. And some of his good friends. He was a very good friend with Robert Louis Stevenson, Scottish writer who visited Hawaii a couple of times and and wrote glowingly about uh, Kalakaua as a conversationalist, as a man whose mind was very stimulating, you know, philosophically. Can you imagine Robert Louis Stevenson and Kalakaua sitting on the porch of Iolani Palace and sipping Kalakaua liked, um, what was it, the Chateau Lafitte. He had found out about Chateau Lafitte when he was in Europe, so he would order that by the case. And he and Stevenson would sit around and drink and talk. Well, you know, that's not just your ordinary, you know, Polynesian cowboy. This guy was smart and talented. When you're uh, writing the book, do you outline this? Do you timeline it? How, how do you do it? It's The book well, is intricately constructed. Well, I appreciate your, your saying that. And I want the final finished book to have that, that feature to it. But, you know, so much is discovered in the process of writing itself. When I first sat down to write, for instance, I didn't know that Sheridan would be the narrator. Sheridan sort of came to me in the process. As I, as I began to try and tell Nani's story, I realized I needed an anchor in the contemporary world. I didn't want it just to be all in the past. There, you know, there's a kind of historical novel that is you, you go into the past and you stay in the past. And part of the pleasure is the novel. Pleasure of the novel is you get to leave the 20th century for a while and live in the 18th century, or live in a kind of costume drama. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's fine, and, and there's a big audience for that. But for me, the most interesting uh, history, the interesting use of historical fiction is, how does that bear upon the world that we inhabit now? You know, what, what can we learn from, what can we learn from history? What can we learn from this late 19th century that helps us understand the late 20th or the early 21st century? Bringing in Sheridan and his family is something that emerged as I did the writing. Wright Morris used to say, writing writing is finding out what you don't yet know about what you know. And there's a process, there's always a process of discovery. And I've learned to trust that process. You know, you start somewhere. The first thing I wrote, was something in Nani's voice. I thought at first that Nani was going to be the narrator and she was going to tell her own story. And the first, the first few pages I wrote was Nani talking about her family and talking about her life. And I realized that that wasn't going to work because she didn't have the kind of education or exposure that would give her the necessary perspective on the story. I needed a broader perspective, but I kept... The, all that stuff about Nani's thinking about her own life becomes part of Nani's diary. You know, then, then her diary is surrounded by this larger type of narrative. I didn't know when I began to write that she would be keeping a diary. But its role as a diary emerges as I look for, you know, the most effective way to tell a story. So these, these different layers sort of come through the writing process. As I get to a point in the narrative and I say, hey, okay, this is, this is interesting, but... We need more context here. How do we get more context? Or we need something here for this scene to play against. 
there's a way, you know, a lot of, a lot of narratives work because you need to tell two stories. The second story comes rising up inside the first story, or the second story comes rising up next to the first story. And it's the two stories together that make the whole story. It can be a playing the 20th century against the 19th century. Those are two different stories, but one illuminates the other. Or playing one ethnic history against another. Two different stories that make the whole story. And that's the kind of stuff that, for me, I don't know everything that's going to be in a novel when I sit down to write. But I've learned to trust the process that I will. I'll find out what I want the book to be about. I've stopped trying to tell people what a book is about when I'm working on it. I'm working on a new novel now. People say, what's it about? I won't even start because... You know, two minutes. If you asked me that question, what are you working on now? And I tried to explain to you, you'd listen to two minutes of gibberish. <laughs> Partway through the novel, Sheridan Brody talks about his thesis, which I think is in part one of the theses of uh, of the novel. And he says we need to take a long look at the traditional values of indigenous cultures and how they can offer guidance as we strive to balance the workings of the natural world with the hazards of technologies and runaway corporate expansion. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what's interesting is that's happening in the 1987 part of the novel with the, the takeover of the radio station, the, the corporate expansion. But you do some, discover some really interesting resonances with what happened to Hawaii. And I'm wondering, which came first for you? Which, discovered, which discovery you made first as a writer? Well, that, that idea of, that Sheridan voices there of looking, looking to indigenous cultures or looking to older cultures for a kind of wisdom that can counter, counterbalance um, the forces that we're all contending with now, that's something that's been on my mind for quite a while as a result of time I've spent in Hawaii and getting to know Hawaiians and, and their priorities and their worldview and, and visiting other lands, visiting Bali. You know, I, I spent some time in Bali and talking to the Balinese about what, what their priorities are. And, and, and then, you know, I know quite a few uh, American Indians and talking to them about what's important and just coming to understand how the people who occupied this continent for so long before the Europeans got here how, how they thought about their space, how they thought about their terrain, how they thought about their relationship to the natural world and to the animal world. There's a tremendous wisdom there that tends to be forgotten. You let it slide away as you're thinking about how to pay off your credit card or whatever the contemporary <laughs> predicament might be. <laughs> and um, I personally have learned a lot by being around people who are still in touch with older cultures. And uh, so Sheridan is a guy who's, who's working in that area, trying to, uh, in a way, align his own life by paying attention to these, to these older cultures. One of the, the portions of history that you illuminate in this book that I found really fascinating was the story of General Sutter. Oh, yes. And, it, and he, he shows up a little bit in, uh, you know, in Snow Mountain Passage. Yes. And... and when, when you discovered him there, did you say, boy, I want to find out more about this guy? And then, uh, Well, I did. I did. I, uh, 
you know, he, there's another character I, I sort of, I had never paid much attention to John Sutter. When you grow up in California, I was born in San Francisco, and you can't escape John Sutter in San Francisco. You got Sutter Street and the Sutter Parking Garage and Sutter's Park and schools named after him and Sutter County and the Sutter Buttes if you drive up north, and he's all over the place. And yet I had never really um, paid much attention to his, his life or his nature until I began to research the Donner Party story. And he's a big, big figure, not only in the story of the Donner Party, but all the wagon trains who came into California during, during the 1840s, that whole early pioneering period, everybody stopped at Sutter's Fort. And he became world famous, you know, before the gold rush. He was, a, he was on the a map of, California was on the map of the world and Sutter was at the center of the map of California. And he's still called the father of California. And I, I began to look at his life for the first time, and that's when I heard about these Hawaiians who had come into California with Sutter. And that fascinated me. Because, it's really interesting. Because um, the information is there. You know, and once you start looking around and studying the historical record, you see quite a few references to these uh, Hawaiians. But they're still way under the public radar. Very few people remember that they were ever there. But the truth is that the first buildings that were erected at what is now the capital of the biggest state in the United States were Hawaiian grass houses. <laughs> 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 and I thought, my goodness, this is really interesting. He seems like a, a dot-com startup tycoon type to me. Absolutely, absolutely. He was a, a great opportunist, a great entrepreneur, a great scoundrel, a, a man, he was perpetually in debt. He never paid. One of the reasons he moved around a lot because he always left this pile of debt behind. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. He, I mean, he left a wife and, and three kids behind in Switzerland with a mound of debt that they had to somehow deal with and ran off to the New World to seek his fortune. And, and so he was, you know, uh, he was another guy who had a lot of personal charm, and he was a great raconteur, and he could speak three or four languages. And everybody who came to Sutter's Fort, he could talk to them, whether they were Spanish or French or English or American or whatever. And um, uh, so he, he's a larger-than-life figure. And I, at one point, I thought, gee, uh, maybe there's a novel to write about, about Sutter himself. But uh, I, I never went with that. But in this new novel... I really, I really wanted to go into his voyage up the Sacramento River and his search for, for the spot that would become Sutter's Fort because he really was entering unknown territory. He was a guy who didn't know quite where he was going. And it's easy to get lost out there now if you have GPS satellites. <laughs> you got it. And in those days, it was still totally Indian country. There had been no European settlements up there at all, and only a couple of explorers had preceded him and left behind very sketchy maps. So uh, he, was, he, was, he was sailing into a world of tribal villages with uh, six white sailors and ten Hawaiians. And that, I've always just thought, that's, that's an amazing scene. And I tried, to, I tried to get a hold of it in this novel because one of these Hawaiians is the father of Nani Keala, the, the central character in the novel. There was a schooner leader who left some memoirs who became a real estate tycoon. 
and called the cannons the first echo of civilization in a primitive wilderness. Who was that? His name was, uh, wait a minute, William Heath. William Heath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kanaka Bill. Kanaka Bill. Yeah, he was, he was one-fourth Hawaiian, and, um, and he was one of the first, first uh, bay pilots uh, back in the 1830s, and he just uh, hung around San Francisco Bay all his life and ended up with a lot of land and a lot of money. Yeah. But in those days, when Sutter came into the bay, he wanted to go up from San Francisco Bay through the Delta to the Sacramento River, and there were no pilots who had ever been into the Delta. And you that's know. a scary thought. I would, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so this guy says, well, I'll give it a shot. And that's why they got lost. Nobody knew where the hell they were going. <laughs> well, <laughs> can imagine. One other aspect of this book novel I find really interesting is our understanding now of, of the hula is, you know, kind of it's somewhat trite. We, we really don't have any clue as to what, what it's all about. Mm. So, so tell us a little bit about the development, what it was before the missionaries came, mm-hmm. what they saw, what they did, and then what King Kalaakaua did to bring it back. <laughs> well, that's, that's big. How much time do we have? <laughs> no, the hula is fascinating. Uh, now, very often, uh, the hula that you see, or for a long time in Honolulu, the, the hula that you would see was a very softened, pliant kind of dance that was designed for visitors. And a whole repertoire of songs grew up to serve that kind of dance. But before, before European contact in traditional Hawaii, um, the cultural memory, social memory, political memory, uh, was all passed forward through the oral tradition. Uh, they didn't have any books, they didn't have any libraries. So, uh, and chant was the medium of transmission. So the chanters were like the librarians and the archivists and the historians, and the chanters knew the history of the people, they knew the legends, they knew the stories of love, of war, uh, politics, the prayers delivered to the gods, whatever it was. And so a great deal of public time was spent listening to these chants. And the dancers were the ones uh, who performed and dramatized the chants. And so the dancers were like storytellers, body storytellers. And a tremendous amount of, of uh, skill in using their fingers, using their hands, using their arms, using their heads, using their shoulders, their legs, to depict the forms of nature, to be a tree, to be a flame rising from a volcano, to be the volcano goddess, to be a bird, to be a wave crashing on the shore. Um, and the wave crashing on the shore could also be a sexual symbol. So um, when the wave crashes, there's also something with the hips maybe that, that uh, makes it erotic. Um, and the dancers were, they were like a form of a very elaborate uh, high art pantomime. And some dancers were um, chosen to be part of the king's court, and they only danced uh, at the king's bidding. And those dancers were sanctified at an early age. The word was kapu. And if you were a kapu dancer, from age four or five, you only studied the dance. and You devoted your life to the hula goddess, and you never married. And you were a sanctified person in the community. 
Um, so it was right at the center of Hawaiian cultural tradition, the dance, very important. Um, and the missionaries show up, and uh, they're horrified at these women with no, no clothes on above their waist, um, dancing what these poor New England missionaries can only read as uh, erotic, unseemly, wanton, barbaric behavior by these women who should have their bodies covered up and should know better. And so the same thing with surfing, because the Hawaiians used to surf naked, uh, or the women would surf naked, and the men might wear a little loincloth to protect their genitals. And that was the most popular sport in Hawaii. And the missionaries saw that, and they thought, oh, my God, these savages go out in the water without any clothes, and men and women out there together with no clothes on, we got to put a stop to that. So within a generation, surfing was almost wiped out. Hula was wiped out. The Hawaiian body was covered with this long neck-to-ankle dress. At the mumu? The mumu. The mumu was brought in to protect the missionaries' eyes from these horrible spectacles of naked women. Kalakaua came to power uh, in 1874. And uh, when he came back from Europe, he decided that uh, any king worth his salt, he'd been sworn into office. He was elected to office. And he'd been sworn in, but he'd never been crowned. And he came back from Europe, and he'd seen all these palaces and all these crowns. And he said, by God, I'm going to get crowned. I'm going to have a real coronation. So he had this huge party out in front of Iolani Palace, and there were still hula troops working in, in the islands, but underground. They were afraid of the missionaries and afraid of public ridicule and public scorn, but there were a lot of dedicated uh, hula teachers who didn't let go of the old tradition, and Kalakaua knew who they were, and he said, for my coronation, I want some hula, and I want some real hula. I want the traditional stuff, and I want people to see it, and we're going to bring this back to life. And that, in the, in the history of Hawaiian culture and the rebirth of Hawaiian culture, begins right there uh, with, with Kalakaua's coronation, when he said to the missionaries and all these uptight um, conquistadors who were trying to take over the islands, he says, this is who we are, and this is where we come from. But then one thing leads to another, and, uh, and Hawaii becomes a tourist destination, and then they... They begin to turn the, the shift the dance toward something that will be more palatable to visitors. So now you have two two really interesting traditions of hula, because a lot of the uh, uh, hula troops now have gone back to the traditional kind of dance that preceded contact era. It's called kahiko, which means old or ancient, and um, it's much more aggressive and forceful, and and um, a lot of uh, angular and uh, startling body movements, uh, and very dramatic. Wow. <laughs> that sounds worth seeing right here when you're there. <laughs> One of the things that, that interested me about this book was in the supposedly modern-day setting of 1987, which is now, as you mentioned, starting to seem somewhat remote to us almost. Uh. Um, I'm wondering how much research you had to do on how somebody in 1987 would do the research that Sheridan Brody does. Ah, that's a good question. That's a good question because this is pre-internet. Right, right. You know, now I myself hardly ever go to the library anymore. I just Google it. You know, I don't have to leave the house. <laughs> but uh, 1987, you know, we had, they had internet. You, there were a few 
databases and things you could access if you were with a university or something like that. But by and large, it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, the way people did research then. Um, so he's there's there's more library work that was necessary, and also um, he wants to he 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 wants to find out the truth of this. Uh, he wants to find out what's really on this wax recording that that contains the king's voice that was recorded in the Palace Hotel in 1891. And, and so I had to do a little research into what kind of equipment was available in, 18, in 1987 for um, extracting sound from a wax cylinder. They're much, it's much more advanced now than it was then. Now they're using a combination of, of computers and laser technology, and they, and they can they can get a kind of sound pattern up on a screen even before you can hear it, all that kind of stuff. But in, in 1987, uh, Sheridan didn't have access to that. So I wanted to be true to that, to that time period. And this, this missing cylinder that you talk about, it's a really great uh, uh, MacGuffin that, that carries you through the novel because you really want to find out what's on it and where it's gone. Uh-huh. Well, that's good. Tell, tell us a little bit about how, how you constructed that mystery as, as a writer. That's another story that I'd heard about. I knew about that for quite some time, that the king's voice had been recorded. At the time I first heard the story, it came, it came with a kind of context of a conspiracy theory that do we really know what the king said on that wax recording? Uh, can we try, we, we, there's, you can read a couple of sources that say, that have transcribed what he said. Can we trust those sources? Because those transcriptions come from a time when only uh, white supremacists were writing the history books and telling us what the history is and who said what. Is this another version of kind of suppressed information, documents that we can't rely on? What did the king really say? What's really on that wax recording? And where is it? What happened to it? Has that too been hidden away so that we can't get our hands on it? You know, this, this, all this stuff is floating around. And I thought that was really interesting. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I, I went farther with the story when I found out that this mixed blood woman, half Hawaiian, half uh, Indian, may have been with the king in the Palace Hotel when that recording was made, with all this kind of mystery surrounding it. And I thought, wow, this is, this is a story we could go with, because it's not just about the, the technical novelty of the voice being recorded. There's a political context there, uh, which is classic uh, political context of indigenous peoples all around the world who are involved in the in the process of re- rewriting the history they've been given from the 19th century. One of the things that's going on in Hawaii right now that's really fascinating, they're taking all these old newspapers. There, was a, there were several Hawaiian-language newspapers all through the 19th century. Oh, really? Yeah, but written by Hawaiians that had never been translated. And wow. there's a whole team of people uh, at the University of Hawaii who are tr- getting, going through these newspapers very systematically translating articles that reveal what the Hawaiians were thinking. While they were being taken over. While they were being taken over. Because one of the, one of the, legends, one of the, one of the legends that was built into the history was, well, uh, there weren't many Hawaiians left, and they didn't have much spunk anyway, so they kind of rolled over and let this happen to them. 
which is not at all the case. There was a huge resistance to the annexation, a huge resistance to the white takeover that's documented in these old newspapers that are being translated line by line in Hawaii and leading to a major revision of how we see the late 19th century in the islands. And and so this, the story of this missing wax cylinder was seemed to be part of that. It turns out that the actual cylinder uh, is, in the, is in the Bishop Museum um, in a climate-controlled room. And so when I found that out, I thought, well, that it's hard to make a drama out of that, but what if there were another cylinder that were recorded on the same day, and that's the one that's missing, and that could have a different message than the one that we've been passed that's been passed down to us, and I started playing around with that. <laughs> and the results are a wonderful novel that's compelling and beautiful. It's one of the things I really like about this novel is it's very generous. It really likes all its characters. Oh, thank you. E- even. Peabody, <laughs> even the, the people who might, in, in somebody else's hands, perhaps be more despicable. In melodrama, you have a hero and you have a villain, uh, and the good guys and the bad guys. But uh, even, the, even the bad guy uh, has an essential humanity that I think you're obliged to, to stay in touch with as a writer. We've been speaking with James D. Houston. His new novel is Bird of Another Heaven. Thank you for joining us, James. Thanks. Great to be with you. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.